um, playing basketball a lot. (laughs) Some of you may not have known that about me. Uh, My dad was an athletic director at a Christian school, and he was also the varsity basketball coach. And uh, so we had a house that was filled with sports watching and sports talking and sports playing. Um, And so because he was the varsity basketball coach, he was actually my coach for three years when I was in high school, which was uh, a great experience. And one of the things that you learn very quickly in a coach's house is that the the main um, playing well in the games is not where the action really happens. I mean, that's important, and that's the goal, is you want to play well in the games. But if you want to be in a position to make a key shot in the last few seconds of a game, you don't get ready for that by playing in the games. You get ready for that by practice all the time, and by training, and by preparation. You have to shoot thousands of shots in practice, in the gym, by yourself, before you're ready to actually go out on the court and do what needs to be done. And so that was definitely the, the environment that uh, my dad understood as a coach. And so I don't ever remember a time when, when I was younger where my brother and I would ask my dad, hey, can we go shoot basketball over at the school this Sunday afternoon or Saturday morning or whatever? I don't ever remember a time where he said, nah, I don't think we're going to do that today. It was always, sure, yeah, we can go over there. I'll open the gym up and you guys can shoot basketball. Because he knew the value of preparation and of training. And to be a good coach, you have to value the training that takes place outside of the games in practice. That's where the real action happens. And if you ever watch uh, an NBA game or a college game on TV... Most of the time, we just don't think about the years of time that have been spent in preparation and training for that. All those guys shoot hundreds or thousands of shots every week to get ready to be the guy that's going to hit that shot at the end of the game. Now, really, in some ways, it's no different when it comes, as we're going to see in the text today, to being on mission for Jesus Christ. There's training that goes into our preparation to be on mission for Jesus Christ. Now, open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. And as you're opening there... As we've studied this gospel, we're going back to this for a few weeks. We've been in the series on the church, kingdom outpost. But as we're going back to this, as we've studied this gospel, I want to remind you of two themes that I hope you have seen as we've gone through this, okay? These kind of run side by side and give us the whole scope of the book of Mark in many ways. First of all, Mark wants us to be able to identify and understand who Jesus Christ is. I mean, that makes sense, right? We understand that about the Gospels. They're telling us, they're giving us a portrait of Christ. And the the writer wants you to know, deep in your soul, this is who this guy is that you're reading about. He's the king who has arrived, and he's inaugurated his kingdom. It's begun through his ministry and through his work, and it will one day come fully on the scene, okay? Okay. Now, that's the first theme, who Christ is. And the second theme is very clear in the Gospel of Mark. And I think you'll see this this morning. And then particularly when we get into chapters 8, 9, and 10, you'll see the theme of discipleship. And these two go together because the one who comes on the scene as the king announcing his kingdom, he calls a group of followers 
to follow him, to learn from him. And then one day he's going to send them out to further advance his kingdom. And so the gospel of Mark really, if you want to try to put it simply, is who is Jesus and what does it mean to be a follower of him? If he is the king, then there are certain ramifications of that for our lives as disciples and as followers of Christ. And so throughout the gospel of Mark, Jesus constantly has the disciples with him. He teaches and instructs them. And all of that is for the purpose of one day sending them out on mission for him. And that's what you're going to see this morning. This is a bit of a training time for the disciples. So if you're not there, Mark chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 13 this morning. Now the reality is that Jesus came to earth to die to rise from the dead and ascend back to the Father as the victorious king. And his goal was always to leave behind this group of followers. But before he does that, he spends all this time in ministry with them. And here, he actually sends them out to do a mission for him as a way of training them and preparing them for what he wants them to do. And this is a little preview of what's going to happen after Jesus ascends to the Father. Now, the disciples probably have no idea that this is a training time and a preview, but that's the reality of the situation. So as we're looking at this passage, it provides a great opportunity for you and I to learn about the basics of discipleship and the basics of what it means to be on mission for Jesus Christ. What does that look like? So this morning, as we always do, we're going to give you... Four foundations to our mission. We always structure it this way intentionally, so it's hopefully easy to follow. But four foundations to our mission as disciples. And the goal is that these foundations would enable our success in the mission. All right? Four foundations to our mission as disciples that enable our success. All right? And the first one of these foundations is that as disciples, you and I are called to be sent. We're called for this purpose, all right? Now, obviously, the disciples play a key role in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, you've seen this throughout the gospel. And I want to show you how we got to this point in the gospel of Mark, all right? Now, in the gospel of Mark, it's kind of a, it's the shortest gospel, and it's kind of interesting. People struggle to figure out the structure of the gospel of Mark. I mean, Matthew is a lot more simple. There's five discourses or five teaching sections and then the narrative around the teaching section sort of supports the teaching section they go together um luke is centered around this big journey that jesus takes in chapter 9 toward jerusalem but mark is a little tricky you read it and you're like okay how is this thing fitting together what's the structure of this gospel and i want you to think of the gospel of mark as almost concentric circles And so each section of the gospel is like a circle of Jesus's ministry. He goes out, he does ministry, he preaches and teaches, he does miracles, and then he sort of lands back at home base. And then the next time he sort of goes out a little further. And it's another concentric circle of ministry. And each of these circles is advancing him closer and closer to Jerusalem. And what's interesting about these circles is each one of them begins with a section describing the disciples. 
And so every section of the book of Mark talks about discipleship right at the beginning of each section. And it lets us know how important the disciples are going to be to the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you this. So flip back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We've already been through these passages, but it's a good reminder to us. Mark chapter 1. Jesus comes onto the scene. And here's sort of the beginning of his ministry. Verse 16 look what he does. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. All right, so Jesus promises them, he calls them to follow him, and he says, I'm going to make you, the goal of you following me is I'm going to make you fishers of men. And if you remember, when we talked about this this description of the disciples as fishers of men, a lot of times we just think of this as as a very positive thing, as evangelism, and that's part of it. But the flip side of this, as we'll see in our passage today, is depending on how people respond to this message, the disciples could actually be agents of judgment on people. So they're proclaiming good news, and it could be comfort, but man, if you respond wrongly to their message, it could be judgment. And that goes back to Jeremiah 16, the image of fishers of men, and brings that judgment and comfort dynamic out in a big way. So the purpose here, he calls them so that they'll be fishers of men. So he calls these four disciples in Mark 1. Now flip over to Mark chapter 3. We go through a whole circle of ministry there. We get to the second section in the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3. Verse 13, and now we return to a focus on the disciples. So he calls this small group in Mark 1, and now he organizes this big official group of 12. Verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and notice why he calls them. Notice why he officially organizes this group. Verse 14, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that... They might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, in verse 15, and have authority to cast out demons. So another section of Mark begins here, and the focus here is on the disciples. And Jesus says, I'm calling these 12 so that they will be with me in relationship, in communion, and so that I'll send them out so that they can preach and so that they can do kingdom work where they go. All right? So now flip over to Mark 6, where we're going to be this morning. Mark chapter 6, another section of the gospel of Mark begins here. And look at verse 7. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. So it's like this progression in discipleship that you see. Originally, he calls four, tells them they're going to be fishers of men. He organizes the 12, says, you're going to be with me. I'm going to send you out to preach and cast out demons. And here, he finally sends them out on a training mission to actually do and begin to do what he's told them that the goal for their discipleship is. So he sends them out two by two to do ministry on his behalf. And that's so key to understanding what the disciples are doing here. And it's key to understanding because this gives us a preview of what's going to happen after Christ ascends to the Father. I mean, this is it. 
They're going to go out on behalf of Jesus Christ. It's the exact same thing that they're going to be doing later on. And again, they don't realize that I don't think at this point, there's going to come a point where Jesus isn't there with them and he's not sending them out in one sense physically, but he is sending them out and empowering them with his Holy Spirit. But keep in mind this first point on the screen here, okay? This is the emphasis that we want to draw out of this. The disciples are called to be sent. This is the goal. This is the end game. This is what Jesus wants out of them. And what does that mean for us? It means that you and I are called to be sent. This is the end game for you and I as well. This is the goal of discipleship. Engaging in the mission that we have as disciples that we've been looking at in our series on Kingdom Outposts. Sharing the gospel with others. This is the goal. This is why we've been called. Now we tend, I think sometimes, to put an emphasis on the first part in Mark 3 of what Jesus says. And rightfully so, in some ways. Jesus called the 12 disciples, remember, to be with him. And so we think discipleship is the sum total of discipleship is to be with Jesus. And there's a glorious truth there. We are called to be with him. But don't ignore the second part of that. We are called to be sent, to go out from being with him, to do his ministry on his behalf. And that's what he's training them here. We're with him in order to go out from him for ministry. I mean, to take this back to the illustration that I started with, with my dad being a basketball coach. I know it's not a perfect parallel, but you don't join a basketball team only to spend time with the coach and learn from the coach. I mean, that's that's where it starts. That's the, the beginning. But you are with the coach so that you can go out and participate in the games. So you can learn how the offense works and the defense works. And so you know how to do what you need to do on the court. We, as disciples, must act on what we hear each Sunday. It's not enough to just sit there. We sit there in order to act on what we hear. Let me say it this way. The only way to be a fully formed disciple of Jesus is to go on mission, to be sent, to engage the mission that Jesus has for us. If we don't engage the mission, then we aren't fully formed disciples of Christ because this is the goal for each disciple. But the reality is we can't do that mission in our own strength. And this is a wonderful truth. And this brings us to our second foundation. Four foundations to our mission. First of all, we are called to be sent. Second, as we're sent, we're empowered by Christ. Look at verse 7 again. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, if you've been tracking with us through the gospel of Mark, over and over again in Mark, you've seen Jesus described as having authority, haven't we? We saw him cast out demons with authority. We saw him teach and the people said, we've never seen authority like this. We even saw him in a boat speak to the wind and the waves and tell them to hush and be quiet. And instantaneously nature obeyed his every word. 
And so we've seen Jesus do everything with authority. And here, the authority is inherent within himself, and he passes it on to his disciples. And so they go out, and they're empowered with his authority to be able to function in the mission that they have on his behalf. They could not do this without the end of verse 7. What they're about to do would not happen if it wasn't for the end of verse 7. Jesus gives them the authority that they need. I mean, you can even see this later in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 9. Remember the story where the disciples, after the transfiguration, they're trying to cast a demon out of this young boy. And Jesus comes down off the mountain and sees this crowd of people. It's one of my favorite stories in Mark. He sees this crowd of people and the disciples are trying to cast this demon out and they can't do it. And Jesus does it. And then the disciples ask him. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, by connection to the one with the true authority. By being with him, then they have the authority to do the mission for him. Now, you and I are not called to cast out demons. That's not our task today. But we are called to be agents of Christ's kingdom, as we've talked about the last few weeks. And we are called to spread light in a dark world. Our lives and our messages, our message, are empowered by Christ for this purpose. John 15 is a great passage for this. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so that beautiful picture in Mark 3 of the disciples being with Jesus And then being sent out from Jesus, we have to have both of those. We have to abide in the vine consistently and then go on mission for him. And when both of those happen, we work with the authority of Christ and proclaim our message based on his his authority. And one of the key ways for us to stay connected to him and to work on his behalf is our third foundation, freedom from distraction. So four foundations to our mission We're called to be sent. We're empowered in the sending by Christ. And third, a key foundation to our mission is it must be engaged with with a great freedom from distraction. Look what Jesus says in verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread. It's probably getting a little unsettling at this point for the disciples, right? No bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Now, obviously, Jesus here wants his disciples to take minimal, maybe an understatement, minimal provisions for their journey. The focus of these verses is largely on what they are not to take. Here's what I don't want you to take, all right? They're basically to take a staff with them, to put on sandals and one cloak, and then not take any of the normal things you would need for a mission like this. They weren't to take any of those things. No money, no extra coat for the cold nights, nothing, no bread, no food. Why? Why does Jesus tell them this? And how does this help us in our mission? Well, Jesus tells them this so that they are in a place of need. 
They have to trust him alone. And I think one commentator nailed this and summarized it so well that I wanted to show it to you. Loyalty to the kingdom of God leaves no room for a prior attachment to material security. Now, when you read this and you see Jesus telling the disciples, don't take any of these things with you. There are a number of ways that we can misapply this to our own lives. All right. And it's been done throughout the history of the church. It's even done today by some very popular writers. Over the centuries, some people have believed that this is a call for every Christian to, to give away, to sell everything that they have and to be destitute and live a destitute lifestyle for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, you can do that. And that's a fine, honestly, that is a fine thing to do if it benefits your walk with Christ. But I don't think, I think that misses the point of what Jesus is asking of his disciples and requiring of them here. I don't think that's what he's demanding of them as they go on mission, okay? You have to be careful to get to the heart of what Jesus says here about our relationship to material provisions. I mean, we all have material provisions, We all have food and clothing, maybe a car, a house, whatever it may be. So what is Christ teaching his disciples here about your relationship to the things that you possess in your life today? I think what he wants the disciples to understand about being on mission for him is they need to process through why they have what they have. They need to think through the motivation behind the reasons that they have their material provisions. And what he wants them to do here is he wants them to simplify what they possess so that they will trust him and him alone. And he doesn't want them to put their trust in material goods and material provisions. Now, it's not wrong to enjoy. In fact, it's very good to enjoy the blessings that God gives us in this life. It's wonderful to get a Chipotle burrito and enjoy it. I do not deny that opportunity when it brings itself up in my life. Okay? It's not wrong. It's good to enjoy these material blessings that God gives. Enjoy your lunch today. Give thanks to God for it. But what is the problem? What is Christ trying to teach his disciples here? It is wrong to find your satisfaction and your security in the things that you have. That's what they needed to learn. One author said this. The point is that a fully human life is lived in a way free from being enslaved to our stuff. We have a lot of stuff, don't we? Our possessions are meant to serve our needs and our humanness rather than our lives being centered around service to our possessions and our desires for them. Man, that's so helpful, particularly in our American culture, too often living a fully human life. I mean, what's she saying there? She's saying our picture of the good life is too often wrapped up in our things. We too often think, I need this, whatever, fill in the blank for you. I need this in order to live a fully human life. And we equate well-being and the good life with having lots of stuff. 
We find our security and our satisfaction in our things rather than in God who provides everything that we need. And so we think if I don't have this shirt or this car, or if I don't eat out this many times in a month, or if I don't have this many TV channels, then I can't really, I'm going to be living less than a good life. I won't really experience what it means to live life well if I don't have these things. And when we think that way and when we feel that way, it's a sure indication that our desires have been shaped by the American dream and enslaved to our stuff more than we're a servant of Jesus Christ. So what's the answer? How can we make sure that we're not enslaved to our stuff? Generosity. Give it away. Not all of it. But be willing to part with your stuff. Don't be attached to it to the point where you can't imagine living life without this thing in front of you. And here, disciples on mission are free from the tyranny of the need for stuff. They don't require this thing in order to live life well or to feel like they live life well. They're singly focused on the mission and they enjoy the fruits and the benefits that God gives us in this life. And they rejoice in those things, but those things don't ruin their day if they don't have them. And they're not necessary for satisfaction and joy. They're singly focused. And the reason for that is because they're on mission. And this brings us to our last foundation here. This sums up our mission. They represent Christ. So we're called in order to be sent. We're empowered by Christ for this mission. We're free from distraction because we're singly focused on him and what he has for us. And as we go on mission, we understand that we're representing him. That's the mission. The mission means that we represent Christ. So Jesus, in this passage, tells the disciples, I want you to be free from distraction, from the stuff that may hinder you and your desires And then he gives them further instructions. Look at verse 10. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So the disciples are to go out and they're to rely on the hospitality of other people. Okay. They're to stay in someone's house who offers this hospitality to them. They're to eat of their food. And this would have been very normal in Israel at this time. This was to be expected. And as they go out, Jesus paints the picture that some people will not receive you as my disciples. And the reason they won't receive them is because of the message that they're preaching and of who they represent. And so they're going out to represent Christ And some people will not receive them. We just saw this in Mark chapter 6. When Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, do you remember what happened there? Jesus didn't do miracles because the people didn't believe him. They were offended by him and grieved by who he said he was and how he presented himself. And Jesus tells the disciples here, if people reject them... They are to respond by proclaiming judgment. Look back on verse 11. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, this is an interesting practice that they're supposed to do. And the reasoning behind this is it's a witness against the people who rejected them. 
And it's a way of saying you are going to suffer at the judgment because of your rejection of Christ. You will be held accountable for the way you did not receive the disciples. Now, notice what I said there. You will be held accountable for the way you did not receive the disciples. Jesus wasn't the one in their homes. Jesus wasn't the one preaching to them and doing miracles. It was the disciples. And the point here is, as they went out, they were to represent Christ. And their mission was to represent him. They were the ones on mission in place of Jesus. Look what they were doing in verse 12. This solidifies this representation even more. Look at verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. You can see in verse 12, they're preaching and they're, they're calling people to repent. That reminds us of Jesus coming on the scene in Mark 1 and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and calling people to repent and believe. They're basically taking what they heard, what they've heard Jesus preaching, and they're giving it to people that they come in contact with. They're teaching and preaching what they've heard from Jesus. Another commentator said this, I thought this summarized it well. As Jesus' disciples, their mission was essentially the extension of Jesus' mission. Thus, to receive them was to receive Jesus, and to reject them was to reject Jesus. They were to go out and do miracles that showed the arrival of the kingdom, and they were empowered by Christ to do that, to show what the kingdom was like, And they were to go out and represent Christ by proclaiming the good news of the king's arrival. Now, we don't do the miracles today, but this is true of us. This last point, we represent Christ. You and I are an extension of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Listen to this passage from 2 Corinthians 5. In some ways, this first verse, verse 17, is the gospel. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this, that message is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us The message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're an extension of the ministry of Jesus. We represent the king by living out his grace and love and proclaiming his message. Now, when, you, when I read this, and maybe when you read this, it's really easy to think, yeah, but these were the apostles. Hello. These were the guys that were actually with Jesus for three and a half years. They watched him calm the sea with his voice. So, of course, they were able to do this sort of ministry. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm me. I'm not them here. So who am I to represent the king and go on mission for him. And that's in some ways a very natural thing to think, but remember who these disciples were in the gospel of Mark. 
mean, get a full picture of the disciples in this gospel. I mean, these are the guys who have been very slow to grasp who Jesus is. They've been with him. They've seen these miracles and they're just not getting it. I mean, think ahead in Mark chapter eight, when Jesus asks them who he is and Peter gets it right intellectually, but then Jesus starts to say, okay, the implications of that are I'm going to die in Jerusalem. And Peter revolts against that. And Jesus actually calls him Satan. That's one of the guys here that goes out to represent Christ. I mean, remember when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and they come and take him away, what happens to these disciples? They all flee. They all run away. They're fickle and they're not committed to Christ in a very firm way in that moment. These are the guys that are representing Jesus. And these are the guys that are only able to represent the king Because they had been with him and they'd been empowered by him. And that's true of you and I as well. And this is exactly how God has designed it for our good and ultimately for his glory. He wants it this way. He wants us in our brokenness, in our fickleness, in our failure. He wants us to represent him because then the power The authority, the glory belongs to him and not to you and I. Staying in 2 Corinthians. But we have this treasure, the gospel message. We have that treasure in jars of clay, pots that were used as a toilet. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show here's why. Here's why God has you and I represent him. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God And not to us. It's because the disciples could only do this as they were empowered by Christ and they were with him. You and I can only do this as we are empowered by Christ. And he takes great delight in that. And he rejoices in that and enjoys that. And so my encouragement to all of us this week is be with Jesus as much as you can. And go out on mission in all of your brokenness and fickleness and messed upness. And go out on mission for him and engage the mission in the power and the glory of his grace. That's what we're called to. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you choose to use us. What a privilege it is to be a part of this mission. And I pray that you would embolden us this week to share the gospel. Help us to speak up as opportunities come up. Provide those opportunities for us this week, Lord. That's our prayer. Help us to live lives of grace and kindness, Father. Help us to represent you in the disposition, the demeanor with which we go out into our workplace, to our small group, into our marriage, our parenting, all of that. Help us to be like Jesus as we do that. And Lord, we can't do any of these things on our own. It requires you to empower us. And you have promised to do that by your Holy Spirit. And so we're asking you to do that even this morning, Lord. We need it. We need it desperately. So be with us this week. Embolden and empower us. And you will receive all the glory. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.